welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is the fourth and final part in my history of the ideology of libertarianism, from the middle of the 1800s through to the the middle of the 1900s. If you didn't catch the preceding three parts, please do feel free to go back and check those out for a bit of context as to what I'm talking about here. Or if you don't care too much for context or, you know, don't trust me to provide it, wouldn't blame you, then please feel free to jump in for the finale. As always, I'm grateful to anyone who shares the podcast or sponsors us on Patreon. Thank you so much. And if you stay tuned at the end of this episode, I'll give you some updates on what I'm thinking of doing going forward with the show. For now, though, let's return to the history of libertarianism. Does the fact that people are never going to agree about what political language means, people are never going to agree about what freedom, fairness, justice mean. If that's true, does that mean that political change is impossible? Throughout this series, I've argued that ideological competition is defined in large part by competition over the control of political language. Freedom means this, says the liberal. Oh no, it doesn't, says the libertarian. Freedom means a state in which each individual is unconstrained by use of his property rights. But what about people whose freedom is limited by poverty, by ill health? the liberal would say. What about the necessary unfreedoms of capitalism in general, the socialist says. And actually, the socialist says while we're at it, is freedom what we should really be striving for anyway? What about equality? What about solidarity? What about history as the ultimate arena of beneficial human change? I might be slightly strawmanning those positions, but you get the idea. There's always this competition over what words mean and over which words are the more important. And on that competition hangs how we understand ourselves as people, how we understand what it is to be a person, how we understand our relationships with others, and how we understand what is desirable or positive or necessary even on a societal level. But If you take the view I've been arguing, that these are all just conceptions of different concepts, then will change ever be possible? Will we ever be able to have radical change in the world? Say, you know, you're living in contemporary America and you want to see us adopt the Green New Deal or something like that. Or conversely, you know, maybe you're a conservative who wants the opposite of that. Will that change ever be possible if if this debate, if these divisions are always going to be with us? So in this, the final part of this series, 
I'm going to reach a finale. I'm going to set up a big heads-on showdown between the modern manifestations of a progressive left liberalism that we've been studying, exemplified by figures like John Stuart Mill, Hobson, Hobhouse, um, more recently Maynard Keynes we've been looking at, and the libertarian tradition, which has been the subject of... Um, this uh, this series, starting with Spencer, going through to figures in the Liberty and Property Defense League, coming through to the individualists at the turn of the century, and in this episode, looking at the thought of Frederick Hayek. We're going to see a real clash between those two that did result in a radically transformed society. And I'm going to leave you with some, some thoughts not necessarily about who was right, though, you know, I don't hide my own personal opinions, or even about this as history, but about what this tells us today. A lot of times when I do interviews, I've done a few recently, one of the things people really want to know is, am I a liberal or am I a radical? And, you know, I point out that those words mean different things to different people, and I also point out that I'm actually a bit of a mix I won't go into my own views too much, but, but there's some things about what I say that would be critical of the sort of contemporary establishment left in the US, and some things I say that would be critical of the more, the more radical side. If that sounds like fence-sitting, then please, uh, you know, I'll put the links to those interviews in the description so that you can check them out. But what it often came down to was different ideas about what is possible and desirable when it comes to political change. How do we, as a matter of strategy, implement radical or seemingly radical political ideas? Do we do it through the system or outside of the system? How do we think about that? If the problem that you have with mainstream progressive liberalism is you just don't think that change is possible through the system, or if the problem that you have with radicalism is that you think that radical change is too ambitious and fundamentally not possible, then I would challenge you that you're actually in both those cases operating with a very impoverished conception of what political change is. Political change isn't one thing. It's a complex cluster of things, and we have to understand it in its complexity to form, you know, if you are going to be a student of politics, and I don't just mean a political observer who has political preferences, but if you are going to be a student of what politics is, what political change is, you have to think in a bit more of a rigorous way about what political change can do, what it is, and what its nature is. So I'm going to tell this story to highlight some aspects of how ideological competition has informed political change historically. And I'm not going to draw parallels to the present. I'm just going to tell the story and give you what I think are the key takeaways. I leave it up to you to decide what, if any, application they might have for today. But I'm I'm using history here not so much as this is exactly what happened. What happened, as Dale Martin, one of my regular guests, regularly reminds us, what happened is lost to us. It's gone. It doesn't exist. All we have are documents and resources that exist in the present. 
that's it. And anything we do on the basis of them will be a construction. Not a reconstruction, a construction. And I'm giving you this construction, as I think history is used best, is as a tool to spark the imagination, as, as, as a tool to open our minds to the range of possibilities for how we think about the political, about political change, and about political contestation, so that we're not locked forever in these incredibly narrow positions of working through the system seems impossible and starting a revolution seems impossible. Both of those as object-level facts are true. Both seem fairly low in terms of probability, but I think we can get beyond that in our thinking. And I hope to pull together many of the elements that I've been setting up so far in this series um, to end you with some ways in which ideological competition has interacted with the political and with on-the-ground political change historically. Not as a way to say, this is definitively what happened in history, although I'm trying to be historically accurate, or as a way to directly copy-paste onto the present, but to present you with a series of imaginative aids, as a way of saying, just think about these things. And... Maybe it will open your mind up to a set of possibilities outside of the fairly narrow and truncated and restricted ways that we tend to debate political change on the left today. Or at least that's what I hope to do. So let's return to our story in the 1930s. As we've been going through this story, we've been looking at an increasingly ascendant ideology that I've been calling progressive liberalism, and an ideology that's existed as a detractor to it. An ideology saying that although they shared a common ancestor, that this type of liberalism no longer represents the true, I use big quotes around that, the true or the historically authentic liberalism. So this is the liberalism I put as one of its first main adherents was John Stuart Mill, and then through the turn of the century, you have people like Green, Hobson, Hobhouse, Taverney, um, and I'm interpreting, I realise there'll be some debate around this, everything I say, by the way, some historian of political thought would probably argue with me um, on, I'm interpreting um, John Maynard Keynes as part of that tradition. And I interpret him in part of that tradition because of some common themes, family resemblances, Wittgenstein might say, that I think we can see throughout that tradition, even though it changes. We can see a theme of a strong belief in individuality, but also a belief, a belief in society and the sociability of mankind, the need to reconcile those two, what's often called the public-private divide, a belief in progress, understood as charting new ground, forging new possibilities, a belief in limited and incountable power, and a belief in development and the improvability of human nature. And I'd argue in, in different forms, but you see all of those elements in Mill, you see it in the turn of the century liberals, and I would argue that they're all there in the, in the case of Keynes. Now, contra to that, there's always been a series of detractors saying that this is not the true liberalism. And indeed, that's one of the key battlegrounds of this division, as we're going to see. Uh, Keynes will say, I represent true liberalism and economic thought, going back to Adam Smith. And Hayek will say, oh, no, you don't. 
and they're arguing over that historical legitimacy, that historical authentication. They're also, as I've been arguing, arguing over the meaning of words. Individualism is just individualism, um, libertarians want to say. There is no such thing as society, uh, something that's going to be said in many phrases and is going to get picked up by conservative thinkers later in, in the story. It's all just individuals, both as our units of analysis and as um, what, what ought to exist. And all of these other bells and whistles you're attaching on, we, we can reduce this down to freedom, individuality, and some set of property rights, and that's really all you need to know. So they're arguing both about what words are the most important, and then what those words mean. And that's the story up until this point. And they're using all sorts of mechanisms to do that in terms of claiming authority from science, competing with each other, competing for control of elites, competing for control of populations. But at the heart of it, you have just a different set of core words and a different set of core word meanings that are doing battle with each other in the arenas of human society and human history. So, we explored Keynes, and I'm going to come back to him in this episode. The next figure to set up in this story is Hayek. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, and one of the reasons it took me a little while to get this episode out is I started by trying to do a full exposition of Hayek's theories, because I knew that he still has a lot of adherence today, and the theories are very intellectually impressive and very complicated, and if I got it wrong, I'd get torn apart. Um, I'm actually not going to. I'm creating an ideological history rather than an intellectual one. So instead of arguing what did Hayek really mean by the natural rate of interest, say, I, I can give you my account of that. But what I'm interested in is what work are these ideas doing in the world? So the ideas of intellectuals and economists and political theorists are interesting to me in this story, but they're only interesting to me as far as they were picked up by either elites or mass populations and actually did real work in the world and actually informed political change and actually informed how all of us see the world today. So I'm less interested in what the historical person meant and more interested in what work was this doing. So, Hayek, um, I'm going to start the story in 1930, where he is um, going to take on a professorship of economics at LSE, London School of Economics. Now, what's interesting to this is that Hayek, who had already been developing a reputation for himself as someone who was very learned and very intellectually able, was able to secure this professorship through Sir William Beveridge, who we're going to end the story with, is one of the... I mean, he wrote the Beveridge Report, so he, he has a claim to being one of the founding fathers of the welfare state. So it's quite interesting that um, he helped secure Hayek's academic trajectory. Now, Hayek, like Keynes, I could spend a lot of time, I won't, um, talking about the personality um, because some of these personalities, they are such 
interesting people, and you could do a whole book just on, like, who they are as people, who they are psychologically, how that informed their conceptions of human nature and their political theory and their political theory in general. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, I would very strongly recommend the book Economics as Ideology by Kenneth R. Hoover, and I'll, I'm actually going to return to that book quite a lot in this episode. That's my sourcing for a lot of it, so I do recommend that. But I wanted to start with just a few comments about Hayek, just to sort of set it up as I did with Keynes. So, um, one of his students um, described Hayek as, quote, a man who wore a perpetually benevolent smile, a trait which did not belie his nature, but his English was thick and his thought appeared tangled, end quote. A more partisan view um, is that of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a contemporary of his, who called Hayek, quote, a gentleman of comprehensively archaic views, end quote. And you know, make what you will of those, I'll leave you with those as little personality descriptors. A gentleman of fundamentally archaic views. Now, that's one point I want to make about how libertarianism is perceived in this period, in the interwar period. The first point to make, by the way, is that to use the word libertarianism or libertarian is archaic. Um, it was generally not used at the time. I believe it was available, but when you're talking about the debate in English economics and political theory in the interwar period, which is going to be hugely consequential, there's a reason I'm focusing on it, hugely consequential for the rest of the world's political thought, but when you're talking about the political thought of that period, um, progressives progressive liberals, that is, when they're critiquing libertarians, tend to just call them individualists. So I've been doing a bit of reading of first-hand sources for this, and I just can't help noticing they all tend to use the word individualist. Now, conversely, the individualists will refer to people like Keynes as collectivists, and again, isn't this, doesn't this sound quite um, contemporary, right? In the if of, as I've said, a lot of political debate boils down to competition over the control of language. One of the big bits of language that people want to seize control over is what do we call our opponents and what do we call ourselves, right? So in the same way as today, Republicans want to say, that Democrats are socialists, and Democrats want to say, well, no, we're democratic socialists, or we're this, we're that, or the other. Um, that's that's definitely a feature here, but the language is different. Um, so libertarians in the first-hand sources here tend to get called individualists, and um, the sort of more progressive liberalism of Keynes tends to get called collectivism. And you'll see it in a couple of the first-hand quotes I'm going to read to you in a sec, um, which is a little bit unfair on both sides. You know, libertarians don't just believe in individualism, although it is very central. They also have a sense of freedom, of property, of um, sort of collective rationality in markets. Um, and as I've been arguing... Progressive liberals do believe in individualism, but it's a much richer and more complete liberalism surrounded by a number of different 
concepts such as society, progress, development, limited and accountable power, and so on. The second point I want to make with that is the word archaic. This is actually very representative of how progressives saw libertarians or you know, individualists at the time. Is They saw it as something fundamentally old-fashioned, a little bit fuddy-duddy, just out of date. Now, that's a little bit different from today. Today, libertarianism is the ideology of... Um, Silicon Valley mega-investors. It's the ideology of shock radio. It's the ideology of the intellectual dark web. Well, maybe in some quarters. Um, it, it's seen as something new and cool and trendy and radical, or at least you know, by libertarians, right? Something a bit different, a bit edgy. Whereas this is your father's ideology in the mid-30s. This is, this is something that's... Uh, that's fundamentally out of date and um i mean think today how we would think about like a genuine aristocracy so we look back at um british earls and dukes and all of that and it just it just sounds so last century right even though it still exists it's um well to use galbraith's term it's archaic and that is how liberalism libertarianism is seen at the time now hayek He's going to see himself contra to that. Remember again, libertarians are always very, very concerned about uh, seeing themselves as the legitimate heirs to real historical liberalism. Well, Hayek is going to see himself as picking up the mantle of the past, reviving this sort of uh, long dormant tradition and really engaging in real political conflict and contestation. But he's doing so against a backdrop and against a world who believes that his ideas are essentially confined to the dustbin of history. So I'll read you another quote about Hayek, um, and this is just directly from Economics' ideology. Quote, Hayek's willingness to engage in public political combat quickly emerged. He was animated in part by the sense that his homeland, Austria by the way, sorry that's parenthesis, his homeland had lost its way amongst the bitter extremes of left and right. These divisions would continue in the brief but bloody Austrian civil war of 1934. England was, as he saw it, the home of the liberty that classical liberalism had promised. As an MRJ carrying the burden of disappointment in his native land, Hayek had some real zeal of the convert to a new community of faith, who then take up arms against the forces that would weaken it, as, is, as within and as without. End quote. So, again, just noticing, he really identified with England, quote, as, quote, the home of the liberty that classical liberalism had promised, end quote. So, again, just picking up on those themes of reviving this dormant ideology, and also just picking up on this theme of being engaged in um, the real contestation of political language and, and really getting in the fray and fighting that fight. Now, in fighting that fight, probably one of the principal enemies on the other side, as well as the radical socialists like Lasky or whatever, 
is going to be Keynes, who we set up last episode, and I will return to him briefly in this one. Um, but they're going to engage in a ferocious and sometimes ferociously petty back and forth over economics and when they don't understand each other there, over like political theory and eventually really right down to epistemology. And I've been reading a bit of this stuff, and I guess one can't help but get the feeling that they're talking past each other. A feeling that they both shared, by the way. So, um, Keynes wrote in response to a negative review from Hayek, quote, Hayek has not read my book with that measure of goodwill which an author is entitled to inspect of a reader. Until he can do so, he will not see what I mean or whether I am right. He evidently has a passion which leads him to pick on me, but I am left wondering what that passion is. End quote. So again, I know I know I say this a lot in this series, and I know ham- I hammer this point home, but how often do you find something when you're reading this history that seems markedly modern? Doesn't that just seem to go for today, this internecine feuding we've had between the so-called intellectual dark web and the social justice left, where they're both just pointing the finger at the way in which the other side is engaging in discourse. He has not read my book with that measure of goodwill which an author is inclined to expect. I'm not responding to you until you address me in the way that I am accustomed to being addressed. I'm not going to talk to these social justice types until they play nicely and stop calling me a racist. Like, whatever it is, like, that, that does seem to be another ineliminatable feature of these debates. So I'm just going to read you, um, again, from Economics as Ideology. This is how uh, Hoover covers it. The result was a... Con- sorry, quote. The result was a controversy that is replete with elliptical struggles over definitions, jousting on shifting ground, and claims to point-dodging and ill-intent. Hayek charges that Keynes, quote, exposition is so difficult, so unsystematic and obscure, that it is extremely difficult for the fellow economist who disagrees with the conclusions to demonstrate the exact point of disagreement and state his objections, end quote. Keynes, Hoover continues, averts that Hayek is, quote, finding himself being led down strange and distasteful paths. He tries to present himself from being dragged along any further by representing the molehills in the pathway as mountains, end quote. As Ralph Damenhoff observes, quote, nature's cure versus the state as it were. Here are the first rounds in a bout that would last half a century, end quote. Hoover continues, it would take Keynes's general theory in 1936 to shift the debate for, to new ground, but the larger battle would last for decades. End quote. So that was all one paragraph from uh, Kenneth Huber. Hoover. Sorry. So what is this debate going to be over? Well, two things, right? First of all, as I've been saying throughout this, I've been taking particular figures as exemplars of their tradition. So I started with um, John Stuart Mill and Spencer, right? Now, I'm not saying that they're necessarily representative of everyone in those camps or, you know, that they're the only people who matter. They're definitely not. 
you know, just time limitations. You don't have time to cover everyone, right? Likewise, I'm taking Keynes and Hayek to be representative of two quite different schools of thought about political theory and about economics in the 30s. So, um, one side, one team, you have um, Keynes representing broadly institutionally um, Oxford and Cambridge and the economists there, and then you have Hayek and another guy called Robbins, who um, Hoover goes into quite a lot of detail on, but I'm not going to cover, who are representing LSE. And those are the two teams. What are they fighting over? Well, the big issue that's emerged in the 30s is economic recessions and depressions, right? You know, libertarianism and progressive liberalism were pulling apart and in the late 1800s, they were contesting each other over um, allowing the working class into the political system. They were contesting each other over, um, like, can the government legislate for worker safety? Can unions exist? Should the weekend exist? Stuff like that. Now, a new curveball is going to be thrown in that up until this point, capitalism or you know just sometimes free markets as it was called at the time had been roughly assumed by both sides now the libertarians might say that they were collectivists and they didn't really believe in individual liberty but at the heart of it the ideology of liberalism had emerged you know in the 17 and 1800s as a reaction against older aristocratic and merchantilist conceptions of the economy and there was still a broad shared consensus that some basically regime of contracts was the way to go. Now, that's going to be tested in the 30s. You know, you're going to have the Great Depression. Britain's economy is going to be in a really terrible shape through most of the 30s. And what do you do with that? Now, again, remember, I've been defining ideologies primarily as these clusters of ideas, these clusters of values at the heart of them. So libertarianism is a cluster of individuality, freedom and property. Progressive liberalism is a cluster of individuality, society, progress, development, limited and accountable power. But those clusters... Um, exist in a reciprocal relationship with policy preferences and how you interact with new incoming policy preferences, new choices that have to be made. And by analogy, I, I and again, I'm not a chemist or a physicist, so don't hold me to this one, I use the metaphor of an atom where at the heart you have a set of protons and uh, neutrons which would represent the core concepts of an ideology, and whizzing around the outside of it, you have a bunch of electrons, which in my analogy were the particular policy views, the specific things that you want to see happen in the world. Now, analogously, if you remove electrons then you're going to change the, the composition of the core. And if you change the composition of the core, you're going to change the number of electrons that can be supported. By analogy, um, the, the, the concepts of liberty, freedom, whatever that you have in the center of your ideology, they're going to determine and be determined by the policy preferences that you attach to that. So let's take those two ideologies and map them onto 
the particular policy choices that are going to be confronting um, Western capitalist societies in this period. Well, it seems like a fairly clear division is going to emerge, right? What do you do in the face of a depression? And it's sort of going to come down to do you do something or nothing? Or maybe even do you do more or do you do less, right? Keynes is famously and I'm not going to get into it, but his thing and what people mean when they say Keynesian economics is an activist approach to fighting depressions. When a big depression happens, a lot of people get unemployed, um, like GDP goes into the negative and we start losing value. When that hits, what we do, according to Keynes, right, and the general theory which he comes out with, is you want to cut interest rates and you want to increase government spending. In other words, government sort of wants to act to stabilise the economy. I'm not going to go through the full theory of this, but the analogy I've often used in my head is like driving a car up and over and down a hill. When you're going up a hill, which is difficult, which would be the recession, you put your foot on the gas to try and push the thing up. Then when you're over and you're going down a steep hill, you maybe just gently tap the brakes so you don't get going too fast. Economists are going to hate that analogy and tear it to shreds. But again, the idea would be when you hit a depression, you use things like pumping money into the economy, creating new jobs, automatic stabilizers, cutting interest rates to provide that fuel to get it going again. And then when the economy is going, you pull back on all of that. You raise interest rates and you cut spending so that you don't get going too fast. So Keynes's theory, I do want to make just this one point, has often been interpreted as, quote, just spend more money. Um, and that is how it always gets maligned by everyone from Hayek on forwards. It's a little bit more subtle than that. It's a counter-cyclical theory. The, the idea basically being that the government should kind of do the opposite of what the economy's doing and always try to bring it back to a steady state. Now, Hayek, in contrast with that, is going to say that fundamentally overstates the ability of policymakers to make these changes that there's a whole theory of like spontaneously arising action but in other words no single person is ever going to know what the correct rate of interest is much less be able to plan and make decisions for the whole economy which is how they interpret um increased monetary spending not monetary, increased fiscal spending, sorry. So that debate's really big and really complicated, but what it essentially boils down to is in the middle of a depression, do you use the instruments of government to take an activist role or not? Do you intervene to try to make things better or not? And this is what's going to set up those two teams, the Cambridge... Oxford team captained by um, Hayek and the LSE team, oh sorry, the Cambridge Oxford team captained by Keynes and the LSE team captained by Hayek. So as Richard Crockett notes, it was, quote, the crucial intellectual debate of the century in the democratic West. It clearly divided economists and ultimately politicians into two distinct camps. 
The borders set down between these camps were to run through British politics, across party boundaries, and out into the wider democratic world as the century unraveled. End quote. So that just reinforcing what I said, but also take note of one aspect in this, in the intellectual debate, as he says, is not just going to stay in universities. This is going to run out into debate between politicians and ultimately for how countries are governed. As such, the debate between professional political thinkers isn't something on which either elites or mass populations can be or should be neutral. So, quoting again from Hoover's Economics as Ideology, quote, The debate over activist policy was much more than an intellectual disagreement. Powerful financial forces were at work in the background. During the 30s, the Rockefeller Foundation played a central role in supporting LSE. The same foundation also supported... Um, a similar institution, that's my paraphrasing, at Geneva that became, with von Mises on its staff, the centre of the European resistance to socialist and Keynesian approaches to government intervention in the marketplace. William Honnold, the director of that institute, an ally of Hayek's, organised two conferences in the 30s specifically to refute the validity of Keynesian economics. End quote. So I skipped a little bit in the middle there. But again, I keep saying this, how modern does that sound? Very rich financial interests funding a dissenting school of economics in order to publicly counter what they see as an unacceptable mainstream economics. I don't even need to say two brothers whose name begins with K, do I? It just sounds very modern. But this goes to a broader point about the nature of political change. Michael Frieden tells us in Ideologies and Political Theory, another book I've been using a lot for this series, that, quote, concrete ideologies are the result of the interaction of three different groups, professional political thinkers, elites, and mass populations, end quote. So, when we're looking at political change, we've got to consider three different groupings and the necessary interplay and relations between them. You've got to look at political theorists and economists and so on. As Keynes famously said, practical men who believe themselves to be totally exempt from any intellectual influence are usually um, the slaves of some defunct economist. So ideas matter, they are powerful, and for people like Mill, like Spencer, like Hobson, Hobhouse, uh, Adam Smith back in the day, Hayek and Keynes today, these really do inform the terms of debate many times and give tools and arguments to politicians and populations. At the same time, there's clearly elite interests and popular interests. Um, elites are going to have a certain interest, but it's not always just that elites are rationally pursuing their self-interest. Like I said, that's a particular terminology and way of thinking about the world that elites picked up. Elites can be aristocratic, they can be merchantalist, they can be theocratic. There's lots of different ways that elites can think, and so ideologies compete with each other for control of, you know, 
professional thinkers, they compete with each other for control over elites, and then finally, and most importantly for us, they compete with each other for control over mass populations. They're always trying to get it so that the proverbial man on the street is using liberty in the way they want him to use liberty. So what's this battle going to be about? Well, the frontiers of the battle are going to be a little bit different between all three of the different groupings. Amongst Hayek and Keynes, it's essentially going to come down to a sort of debate about epistemology. So, um, in a lecture he gave at LSE, um, Hayek represented himself, again, as libertarians are always wont to do, as sort of the heir of the true history of political economy represented by Hume and Smith. And he's going to argue against um, Keynes, who he sees as a perversion of that, in trying to do central planning, as he calls it, in trying to, like, assume that he knows what's best for all of society. And he'll say, quote... In short, it showed that an immensely complicated mechanism existed, worked, and solved problems, frequently by means which proved to be the only possible means by which the result could have been accomplished, but could not be possibly the result of deliberate regulation because nobody understood them. End quote. So in other words, the immensely complicated mechanism is like the market, I guess, broadly um, but no single person understands it. No single person can control it and direct it. Now, in response, um, Hayek is essentially putting both quite a strong and quite a weak case out there. He's saying you really can't ever know that much about what's possible in terms of political change, except for this one thing, which is these process leading to the market, that we can know absolutely. Now, there is an answer to that contradiction. In other words, if you can never really know anything about how to direct social processes, how do you know that the market is different? How do you know so much about that? That would always be my challenge to libertarians. Hayek does have an answer to that, which is it's the specific nature of the market as combining the different wisdom and intelligences of people in it, which sets it apart from a particular thinker. Now, Keynes's response is subtle, but I think powerful, which is reverting to think thinking about things probabilistically. He's going to say, essentially, that we don't need to know absolutely that, you know, this plan is the best or that plan is the best, but we can say there is a probability that, say, more government spending in a, in a recession will work well, and there's also a risk of doing nothing, and you've just got to weigh it up almost like a card player deciding who to, you know, which bet is the correct bet for you to make. Nothing's guaranteed, but there's better and worse answers. And again, so they're not just talking past each other, um... Politically, they're talking past each other epistemologically. So, um, again, from Hoover um, in the next chapter, uh, Hoover writes, quote, But once again, Hayek had overreached the argument. Keynes never presumed that he was demonstrating a catalogue of certainties. Consequently, he focused on probabilities as the basis for action. 
end quote. So that's a real intellectual rabbit hole that they've gone down together, but you can sort of think about it in ideological terms, right? Hayek is giving you what is going to become an unconscious dogma of contemporary conservatism, which he will in part help to build, which is that there are extra-human rules and constraints on the social structure. Remember I said that to conservatives, positive change is always about reverting back to an underlying process. So, as, as messy as this epistemological debate is, I, I do interpret a fundamentally conservative core ideological construct at the heart of Hayek's argument here. At the same time, thinking about change, the epistemology of change, whatever you want to call it, from a probabilistic view, as Hayek's doing, and saying, okay, well, what's the probability of this? What's the probability of that? Like, to my mind, that represents a fundamentally liberal view of change as charting new ground, stepping out into the unknown, which, of course, is a distinct um, view of change again from the socialist or radical revolutionary, you know, back to the drawing board conception. So, like I say, I'm, I'm avoiding going down into that rabbit hole, and if what I said didn't make a devastating amount of sense, you know, I could do a whole other four-part series just on that. But I'm trying to just give you the overview of the mechanics of change. So, that's a lot of the debate um, uh, between professional thinkers. But remember, ideologies are never just competing in one domain. As Frieden tells us, they're the interaction of three different groups. Professional political thinkers, which includes economists, elites, and mass populations, right? So you're never just fighting on one front. And when you are just fighting on one front, that tends to be when you lose. They're also fighting for public acceptance. And this is where Hayek shows himself to be clever and often quite multilingual in his ideological communications. So Hayek, along with others, is going to start creating these groups, these conferences, again, how modern does this all sound, in order to promote what he says as classical liberalism to um, the, the wider world. So there's going to be one in Paris in 1938. Mm -hmm. And if my friend accent is lousy, by the way, that is um, uh, just a symptom of my heritage as an Englishman. But there's going to be this conference in Paris called the Collectique Walter Lippmann. Um, and Lippmann is um, going to be part of this um, with um, Hayek and von Mises. And they're going to, um, quoting from Hoover here, Lippmann's formulation placed him and his colleagues on the side of freedom and against the antagonists of equality. They framed the issue as one of individual choice versus rule by government. End quote. You know what I'm going to say? How modern does that sound? But at the time, that actually sounded very old-fashioned. That sounded like someone hearkening back to the... You know, like someone saying, what we really need is just rule by lords and dukes. It sounded fuddy-duddy at the time, or at least that's my read of history. But this, this um, framing of the debate is one that was competing for control. It was offering a quite different, you might say simplified, you might just say different, but interpretation of this, boiling it down to individual choice v. government, freedom v. equality, and presenting this 
to the general public for consumption. And again, look at what they're doing. They're competing for the control of how the proverbial man or woman on the street uses words. And it's not the only group to do this. There's um, also going to be the Mount Perlin Society, um, assembled in Switzerland by Hayek. And again, a lot of these are funded, supported by particular elite interests. Now, when talking about elites, again, I don't want to make the point that elites are, like, naturally libertarian. Your average wealthy businessman in these days arguably wasn't, although certainly there was a large number who were and were sympathetic. Hayek said, and I'm quoting him here, that we should be unapologetic about seeking control over the elite right? So the elite are perhaps always going to be a bit of a softer pitch for this sort of individualist libertarian ideology, but it's not guaranteed. There were a lot of wealthy businessmen who were, you know, new dealers in the States or progressive liberals in the UK. So there you sort of have the dynamics at play. Libertarianism right now is fighting a three-fronted war against progressive liberalism. And by the way, side note, as always, these are not the only two ideologies in the fray. There's also conservatives, there's also socialists, and as we go into the 30s, there's also fascists, right? But I'm just focusing on these two from this story. But it's fighting this three-fronted war. So on the academic side, it's engaging in this sort of tit-for-tat academic dispute, which isn't I would argue, displaying the features of this sort of high-minded ivory tower dispute where points are recognised and acknowledged. Often, although the di- dispute is very complicated and very uh, epistemological, they're sort of talking past each other. They're sort of assuming that the other person is acting in bad faith. And it kind of has that gnarly, mishmashy patchwork. Um, and I would say he's just very ideological right? Like, like what happens in the academy and amongst economists is ideological. I argued that economics is ideological by its nature. And we're seeing here the competition of those two ideologies for securing control over professional political thinkers. Why would they want to do that? Well, because it gives them a voice and it also gives them legitimacy as the correct solution, the correct use of words. Remember, one of the tactics that ideologies have is to present themselves as objectively correct and by securing control over professional thinkers. That's one way they can do that. So they're fighting to control secure control over professional political thinkers for the legitimizing effect, for their ability to have a voice to influence policy and so on and so forth. At the same time, libertarians are self-consciously seeking out members of the elite, wealthy businessmen, powerful politicians, as people who will receive those ideas, also people who will be sources of funding for those ideas. Why do you want to control the elites? Because they have money and power. They can give your ideology a boost by funding your propaganda efforts, and that has always and is to this day a strong central element of the real world Um how libertarianism propagates itself. It seeks support and funding and patriotage from the wealthy. That is true today, it was true in the 30s, and it was true going all the way back to um, 
the um, Freedom and Property Defense League that Herbert Spencer was a part of. And I don't think there's any point in being coy about this. You know, people will say, oh, that's not insulting. It's not, it's, it's, it's not objective. Well, it might be insulting. It's also true. And it's, it is an objective fact about history. And libertarians aren't the only ideology that's competed for the elites in that way. And, you know, they're arguably one of the more successful ones. So they're competing for professional thinkers, they're competing for control of the elites, and they're competing for control of mass populations. What is a way that we can package these ideas and get them out there and have these conferences? And today they'd be doing podcasting and going on YouTube, right? Um, I guess these sort of conferences and publications were their equivalent of that. What's the way of getting this out there so the proverbial man on the street, when he says freedom... He means what we want it to mean. So they're competing on this three-front war. And in Hayek's case, he's doing so quite self-consciously. Um, and Hayek, I'll add this one more, in doing that is in many ways mirroring what he saw as the successful tactics of socialists half a century earlier. He's saying, you see all these you know, Marxists and um, communitarians, he would often call them, they got themselves nestled right in at the heart of the academy. They got the man on the street barking off about equality, and they even got representation in Parliament. And he's sitting down and he's thinking, you know, that's what we need to do. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. He spoke self-consciously about admiration for the efficacy of socialists in promoting their utopian vision and these tactics that they used. Now, in all three fronts of this war, there's going to be a sustained effort to stigmatize and delegitimize the Keynesian ideas to which they were opposed um, in ways that echo with us down through to today. So again, from Hoover's Economics of Ideology, at, quote, at the 1938 conference, the role of public expositor for the pro-market forces was suggested to Hayek. Richard Crockett reports that this is when Hayek began thinking of writing The Road to Serfdom, which was in 1944, which was to become the manifesto of the self-styled liberals as they arrayed themselves against, quote, collectivism and Keynesianism, end quote. The alternative was from the outset to show that the Keynesian middle way was not an alternative to, but rather a version of socialism, end quote. What am I going to say? How modern does that sound? But it sounds modern because we're seeing the origin of these ideas that were often perceived in a very different way and had a very different flavour back then. So to recap, Keynes is arguing for a middle road against, as he saw it, the equal extremes of reaction and revolution, against a mere return to hereditary rule, or the extreme, like a collapse into violent fascism, and on the other side, a Bolshevism, a communism, that wants to just overthrow society and turn the baby out with the bathwater. He was existentially concerned with finding that middle road that would allow civilization to continue and to preserve what was valuable because both stasis and revolution seemed to him at least to 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 run to ruin now one thing libertarians said and later on in the 60s the 70s this is going to get incorporated by mainstream conservatives is they are just going to deny the distinction 
a little bit of socialism is to them the same as fundamentally revolutionary socialism. And you, you see it in contemporary American debate, right? Republicans seemingly just can't get it through their heads, or maybe don't want to, or not incentivized to do so, that there is a difference between Bernie Sanders and Hugo Chavez, or Stalin. Uh, you know, according to a certain type of conservatism, there is no different option. It's a binary choice. You have free markets, or you have Venezuela. And I think for those of us who do view ourselves as part of the middle ground, there's something fundamentally frustrating about that because it seems not just wrong, but dishonest. And as students of ideology, though, we shouldn't let that phrase us. Ideologies are not fully rational. They're not bastions of truth. And they're certainly not creatures that play by gentlemanly rules of fair play. Indeed, one of their functions is to fight over and establish rules that benefit them. So, we shouldn't be too shocked that we, um, that we find that in their history. Now, of course, as that's all going on with libertarianism, as Hayek is, as an ideological warrior fighting for his ideology's acceptance amongst the elites, amongst the mass populations, amongst professional, political, and economic thinkers. The progressive liberalism that we've been talking about hasn't stood static either. It's coming up with its own formulations across all of these domains. Um, and I'll quickly just go through them. So on the intellectual level, we talked about the complex epistemological debates that Hayek and Keynes are getting into. There's, there's one other element I'd like to touch on briefly in rereading Keynes, um, which is what he had to say about human nature and human motivation. Because this intellectual dispute isn't just about you know, the big practicalities of what is possible at a societal level. It is, but it's it's also about the more moral philosophy questions of what it is to be a person, what it, what, what it means to lead a good life. And one thing that was axiomatic to, you know, the quote-unquote science of economics from the beginning that tends to be in libertarianism in all its manifestations, and has now become just simply an ingrained and accepted part of our current world, is homo economicus. The idea of man as a, a individual, rational want-satisfier, as Frieden says in his work, under the guise of political economy, a new human being was introduced into liberalism, bereft of all but a superficial sense of grigosity, and reduced to want-fulfillment. So, you know, that idea of rational self-interest permeates so much of our society, that of ourselves as individual, rational want-fulfillers, is there implicitly or explicitly in so many of our assumptions, descriptions of the world, um, as well as um, our institutional makeup, that reading Keynes, I'd forgotten this about him, it's almost like taking a breath of fresh air after you've been underwater, in that he just rejects that outright, and rejects it rather beautifully. Um, so, Keynes sees himself as following Adam Smith in 
seeing people as being based not only on material self-interest, but on the human desire for respect. And again, notice the ideological feature there, competing over control of a timeline. That's a distinctively ideological feature. So Hayek is saying, I am the true heir to classical liberals. Oh, no, you're not, says Keynes, picking up on different elements of the same writer's work. So this is from Keynes, quote, to deserve to acquire and to enjoy the respect and admiration of mankind are the great objects of ambition and emulation. Two different roads are presented to us, equally leading to the attainment of this much-desired object. The one by the study of wisdom and practice of virtue, the other by the acquisition of wealth and greatness." End quote. So, we desire esteem in the eyes of others. We, ad- we desire to be respected. And wealth, according to Keynes, is, is sort of like a mechanism for getting us there. But, according to Keynes, it's not the best mechanism. And a society in which people fulfil their uh, deeply human and uh, maybe even natural need for respect by accumulating wealth is, according to him not a healthy society. So, um, I, I love this quote. Um, Keynes looking forward in, the, in history, looking forward to a better time in the future, writes, quote, the love of money as a possession, as distinguished from the lover's money as a means to the enjoyment and realities of life, will be recognised for what it is. A somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one hands over with a shudder to the specialists in mental disease, end quote. So in other words, you know, the desire to earn that extra billion dollars, the desire to have wealth simply for having wealth, which is a baked-in feature to our to, to our social system right now, to our ways of thinking, to our ways of organising moral worth, that is, according to Keynes, quote, a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities, end quote. And again, I, I, I find reading this really to be just a breath of fresh air, because... Like I say, um, the, the the overriding um, value in our society is a sort of narrow and impoverished individualism. Now, Keynes values individualism a great deal too. It's a very different sort of individualism. It, it's a much more nuanced individualism that locates it at the centre of a variety of different and complex goods. And to get a flavour of this, I want to read you what Keynes said about Einstein, who was a contemporary of his. And he's talking about why fascists, the, you know, newly emergent Nazi party, um, seem to particularly hate Einstein. So he writes, quote, it is not an accident that the Nazi lads vent a particular fury against Einstein. He does truly stand for what they most dislike, the opposite of the blonde beast. Intellectualist, individualist, supranationalist, pacifist, inky, plump. How should they know the glory of the free-ranging intellect and soft objective sympathy 
to whom money and violence, drink and blood and pomp mean absolutely nothing. End quote. And that's a vision of the individual, certainly, that's harder to attain, certainly, that is perhaps slightly out of our grasp in our current state, but coming from a world obsessed with a thin, rationalistic, want-fulfilling, mechanistic view of human nature, or a world where the reactions against that view can only be expressed in terms of class interest or oppressed groups, which are certainly aspects of our reality, to go for that more fleeting, more hard-to-grasp, and perhaps more ultimately unattainable and perhaps even more elitist vision of, and I quote again, the free-ranging intellect and soft objective sympathy to whom money and violence, drink and blood and pomp mean absolutely nothing, end quote. That is an element to this liberal vision of the world that I, I wonder and fear has been lost from liberalism and is frankly desperately needed in our current day. If it fails, it fails by its own ambition. But that is a, a, a better reason to fail, I think, than the the baseness and the narrowness and the, the frankly, the childishness of, of the, the, the simplisticness of the way that we're taught that humans are merely as want fulfillers. So... That's an aside, but that quote does throw up something else, doesn't it? The Nazis. And this is going to relate to the next part of our story, which is, if you remember, I said there was three frontiers on which these ideologies are fighting, perhaps three domains of warfare. The control for the population, for the elite, and for professional thinkers and intellectuals. Um, by analogy, you might say, you know, there's the domains of warfare, there's like the land, the air, and the sea, and a particular army might be more dominant on the land, but less dominant in the air, and those relate to each other, and it'll be difficult to win a war without at least some combat effectiveness in all of them, even if you don't have dominance in all of them. And I think something similar is true of ideological conflict, that if you're only looking at control for acceptance amongst one of those three, then that's a bit like an army that is fighting a war with only aircraft, or only a fleet, or something like that. And, you know, obviously what any army's going for is total dominance in all three, but you could arguably win with sort of a balance of forces in all of them. Similarly with ideologies, ideally every ideology would like to have full dominance in all three, but you can win with a balance of forces. So anyway, we talked about the domain of intellectual discourse, and we talked about what both the libertarians and the you know progressive liberals are arguing about you know what is possible in society, what's 
you know, ultimately foundational epistemologically. And then I've also talked a lot, because I do think it is at the heart of this story, about what's being offered by both liberals and libertarians in terms of the conception of the person and what it is to lead a valuable and meaningful and flourishing human life. The next bit that that brings us on to, and why I mentioned, you know, the Nazis and World War Two, is that is going to give the progressive left a real foothold in institutional power in British politics. Now, I'm going to do something um, possibly unethical in this series, and I'm going to skip World War II. I spent a little bit of time on World War I, but World War II is such a big story, and it's, you know, going to just be told better elsewhere by so many people. And it's sad because both Keynes and Hayek as well as Lasky, who I've mentioned a little, have really important roles. You know, I mean, Keynes is going to be the government minister par excellence in this war. Um, but I'm, I'm, it's told better elsewhere, so I am just going to skip over it. And I'm going to note just one feature, which is the UK enters into a coalition government, which means that there was a conservative um, government which means that there was a Conservative government um, under Neville Chamberlain at the beginning of the war, later replaced by uh, Churchill, obviously. But Churchill invites the British Labour Party to join him in government, so you have a national unity government, which allows uh, Clement Attlee to um, have a part in the running of the country. Clement Attlee's the Labour Party leader. And the Labour Party at the time are fairly hardcore socialists, but they're also... A number of the key posts are occupied by these sort of reforming progressive liberals who incorporate aspects of socialism together with a desire to achieve those ends from sort of quote-unquote within the system. Now, they're going to start formulating policies, and I'll simplify this very drastically, to after the war is over, preserve many of the features of the war economy in peacetime. So obviously the Second World War was a total war. It required the, the entire participation of all of society. And, you know, again to oversimplify, but the idea runs something like this. If we can have full employment and everyone having a job, by virtue of killing Germans, why couldn't we have full employment and everyone, you know, having the basic things that they need by operationalizing the whole powers of the modern state, not to kill Germans, but to treat sick people, to educate the young, to care for the old. So at the same time as libertarians exemplified by Hayek are competing for control of academia with their sort of theories of the spontaneously arising order, they're competing for elites, um, for you know their patronage and so on. You have um, progressive liberals who are competing, you know, in academia and professional thinking um, according to what they see is, is the true lessons and true meaning of classical liberalism and competing for political power by advancing some very radical theories at the heart of the establishment 
um, of reusing those war powers for different and socially radical ends. And what's going to happen is essentially the creation of the modern welfare state. So in this coalition government between the Labour Party and um, the Conservative Party, in 1941, a Labour MP and minister called Arthur Greenwood is going to announce the creation of this committee to do a survey of Britain's social insurance and different services. Um, I'll just read a quote from him, quote, to undertake with special reference to the interrelation of schemes, a survey of existing national schemes of social insurance of social insurance and allied services, including workmen's compensation, and to make recommendations, end quote. So this is what's going to become the Beveridge Report. I mentioned Beveridge earlier, and this is going to go down in history as a sort of piece of quite stark socialism, which in some ways it is. But what I want to note is when I'm reading this document, I read a number of distinctively liberal themes according to the sort of progressive liberal story that I've been tracing through. So I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes, and you don't need the context to this other than this is the document that lays the blueprint for the NHS, for every British person having the right to healthcare free at the point of use, to um, universal education, to um, even very preposterous things by today's lines, like nationalising the railroads, although apparently Jeremy Corbyn wants that too. But I'm going to read you a few bits from it, and all you need to see this as is a blueprint for welfare state institutions. And, you know, which ideology would you categorise this as? So, in talking about creating, quote, a comprehensive policy of social progress, end quote, it goes on to say, the Bedford report, that this safety net, quote, should not stifle incentive, opportunity, responsibility in establishing a national minimum. It should leave room and encouragement for voluntary action and by each individual to provide more than that minimum for himself and his family. And I could go on with this. Um, I mean, I wouldn't read the whole thing. It is a little dry, but there's some interesting little bits in there. I'm going to read you one more. Quote, Social security, as used in this report, means assurance of a certain income. The plan for social security set out in this report is a plan to win freedom from want by maintaining incomes. But sufficiency of income is not sufficient in itself. Freedom from want is only one of the essential freedoms of mankind. End quote. This, this phrase, by the way, freedom from want... Um, which I take, which is sort of freedom from low welfare, freedom from poverty, it occurs again and again and again throughout the report. And they talk about other essential freedoms. So, what is this? How would you ideologically categorize this? Well, if you define it by its policy goals, it's socialist, right? But if you define it by the ultimate values that, that it's appealing to, it's appealing to individualism, it's appealing to freedom, but it's a f appealing to a very different sort of freedom, to the freedom that the individualist, that libertarian is appealing to. It's not an abstract freedom of just pure negative liberty and enforcement of property rights. It's a freedom that's threatened by poverty. 
It's a freedom that's threatened by sickness, um, by disease, by, by lack of education. And it's saying that it, its primary goal is to make individuals free, but these individuals are in dis- understood in a social context, and that freedom is threatened, certainly by, you know, violent domination and government overreach, but by poverty by economic insecurity, by lack of education. I mean, to my mind, this looks like certainly an evolved and adjusted, but but another continuation of this set of core liberal concepts that we've been tracking, right? So, and again, look at what, what's happening here. Ideologies are competition over the control of political language. This report is a policy framework. It's going to make a number of you know detailed recommendations that we don't need to get into. But it's also an ideological document, both in that it's informed by an ideology, which it's clearly sourced from intellectuals like um, Keynes and Lasky and maybe even going back further, but it's also expressing an ideology. Again, ideologies are competing for language, they're competing for certainty, they're competing for finality across these three very different battlefields. The domain of um, professional political thinking, which is embodied in many ways in this report, the control for elite acceptance, which this report definitely is. It's it's a matter of formulating government policy, right, written by people who were part of the leadership of Britain during World War II. And then finally, it's competing for control of acceptance by mass populations, which is what's going to happen immediately after World War II. Ends. So, after the victory over Germany, um, Churchill calls an election, the 1945 British general election, almost immediately, right? And on the face of it, this is something he's fairly strongly set up to do. This is, after all, the man who has led England through its darkest hour, Right? England, Britain, I should say, the British Empire, actually, at this time, more properly. We shouldn't forget about um, the non-European contributions to this cause. Now, I'm not going to give you my take on Churchill, except to say that there's a sort of heroic Churchill and a revisionist Churchill, which I think are both incomplete um, the heroic Churchill being, you know, the, the saviour of the world and all that, and the the revisionist Churchill being a nasty, dank, racist, sexist, imperialist. And they both have elements of truth to them, but I think it's more complicated than that. Um, but anyway, I won't get sucked down by that. My point is that this is going to become a key... You know, this is going to become the ground zero, this election, for the competition between these two ideologies that, that we've been talking about. So I think you can draw a line. It's maybe not a straight line, but, but a, a sort of back and forth line from the ideas of John Stuart Mill in valuing development and progress, in, in seeing um, freedom as, as more than just um, you know the, the lack of interpersonal constraints and problems property rights, through to the the inclusion within that liberalism of socialist concepts, of the organic analogy in Hobson and Hobhouse, up to the very opt- 
atomistic, idealistic, in some ways, liberalism of Keynes, of his views of government as actively intervening to help protect the economy, combined with ideas from um, the socialist tradition and combined with, you know, conservative ideas, actually, for that matter, are now coming together to form a new vision, and that is of the modern welfare state that is going to be expressed, um, you know, both within the frontier of professional political thinkers and within the idea of elite control, but then finally within the realms of what can the public be mobilised around, what will the public accept and find intuitive, because this, this, this report, this vision, is going to become the foundation for what Labour is running on. Churchill, initially in this changes, was running on, you know, the hero, we won the war, the great leader. Labour's going to run on something else entirely. Labour is going to run on all the effort that we as a nation-state, what we have shown we are capable of doing in war, let's do in peace. Their slogan, in fact, was, we've won the war, now let's win the peace. Fun slogan, right? Um, and they're going to say, you know, let's use this massive power of the nation-state that we've mobilised for war, let's use that to give people the freedom from ill health, from poverty. Let's ensure certain national minimums. Let's ensure everyone gets to see a doctor, whether they can afford it or not. And that's going to become their election platform. It, it, it's one of the most radical platforms put before a general public with a chance of implementation. Now, if you're a conservative um, politician, Churchill, right, faced with this, what on the face of it might seem to be a very popular, populist, we might say in today's terms, what working man in England wouldn't want, or woman for that matter, wouldn't want a, a, a guaranteed job, a guaranteed income, access to a doctor regardless of his ability to pay for it. This might be something quite threatening, right? And not only that, but it's coming from people who are government ministers in positions of power. And it's most importantly, maybe not most importantly, but very importantly, it's coming with a very distinguished intellectual heritage. It's coming with the veneer of objectivity. It's coming from a person who at the time was seen as the greatest mind of his generation. So if you are that conservative party, so to whom do you turn? Well, turns out the other figure we've been tracking in this story, Mayak, has just written a book, The Road to Serfdom, in 1944, which is a sustained critique of centralised socialist planning. That might come in useful, right? And it's a book that's going to gain some popularity. So this is a quote from uh, Isaiah Berlin, who any student of political theory will probably have read The Two Concepts of Liberty, that dude. Um, he talks about um, how this was something that was very attractive to elites. So in a dispatch 
um, drafted by Isaiah Berlin, the British ambassador to the United States, reported, um, quote, Wall Street looks on Hayek as the richest gold mine yet discovered, and are peddling his views everywhere. Professor Hayek should not be surprised if he was invited to address the daughters of the American Revolution to provide them with the latest weapons against such sinister social incendiaries as Lord Keynes and the British Treasury. End quote. So isn't that interesting that... People are, you know, the the Wall Street, the conservatives, they're self-consciously searching for what is our intellectual weapon against sinister social incendiaries such as Lord Keynes and the British Treasury. So, again, competing for control of language, legitimacy, um, objectivity or the perception thereof within, they recognise that they need to compete within that intellectual domain. So reading now um, about the reception of Road to Serfdom, again from economics as ideology. Um, you should read this book, by the way. I'm taking a lot from here. So, quote, though intended to rally classical liberals, Hayek had been surprised that the message of Road to Serfdom was taken up in 1945 by the Conservative Party. His thesis was attractive as an attack on socialist planning and a celebration of traditional English moral values. The Conservative Party offered to republish the book out of its own rationed supply of paper. Winston Churchill had, as we have seen, used Hayek's arguments in the election campaign. End quote. So, again, there's... um. Remember the quote I opened the series with, where Herbert Spencer was kind of surprised in saying, you know, it actually might turn out that it's not liberals at all, but it's conservatives who are most receptive to my ideas. That's always sort of been a recurring theme within libertarianism, right? And you see it again with Hayek, and you go through and you see it again today with sort of the intellectual dark web people of the world, someone like um, Dave Rubin, maybe, sort of saying surprisedly, you know, oh, you know, it really, it turns out that maybe, just maybe, this free speech and whatever that I value is actually better, ironically enough, protected by these conservative types. And it might be a bit uncharitable to say this, but this way... This way that libertarianism plays coy and, oh, turns out this is attractive to conservatives, it's been doing it from the very beginning, so it shouldn't be a surprise anymore. And it just, it's too cute by half. Okay, I'll, I'll try and maintain the veneer of telling an objective history. Now, the Conservative Party in, you know, weaponizing these ideas for a mass population are going to simplify them. Hayek's going to want to say, no, no, this is a critique of central planning in general. It's not specifically attack an attack on, you know, the Labour Party and this type of socialism, though it is that too. Um, but they're going to take it 
to the extreme and say, you know, Hayek is going to say that you, you can't create this spontaneous order through planning and that any attempts to do so are necessarily going to be harmful and destructive and repressive. You can't control spontaneous order, right? And so any attempt to do so is necessarily going to involve coercion. Churchill is going to take that and run with it and say, you know, this will lead us to a return to fascism, essentially. And we should listen to him in his own words, because this is a speech that has been directly linked to Hayek's influence on Churchill, although Hayek himself played a little bit coy with it. Um, and it's called the Gestapo speech, or it's been um, retrospectively called that. So let's listen to Churchill in his own words, describing the dangers that he sees, or Hayek has pointed out to him, in centralized planning. Socialism is in its essence an attack not only upon British enterprise, but upon the right of an ordinary man or woman to breathe freely without having a harsh, clumsy, tyrannical hand clashed across their mouths and nostrils. A, a free parliament. Look at that. A free parliament is odious to the socialist doctrinaire. Uh, have we not heard Mr. Herbert Morrison descant upon his plans to curtail parliamentary procedure and pass laws simply by resolutions of broad principle in the House of Commons, afterwards to be left by parliament to the executive and to the bureaucrats to elaborate and enforce by departmental regulations? As for the Stafford Crips on Parliament in the Socialist State, I have not time to read you what he said, but perhaps it will meet the public eye during the election campaign. Uh, but I will go farther. I declare to you from the bottom of my heart that no socialist system can be established without a political police. Many of those who are advocating socialism or voting socialist today will be horrified at this idea. That is because they are short-sighted. That is because they do not see where their theories are leading them. No socialist government conducting the entire life and industry of the country could afford to allow free, sharp, or violently worded expressions of public discontent. They would have to fall back on some form of Gestapo, no doubt very humanely directed in the first instance. And this would nip in the bud opinion at its forms. It would stop criticism as it reared its head. And it would gather all the power to the Supreme Party and the party leaders rising like stately pinnacles above their vast bureaucracies of civil servants, no longer servants, and no longer civil. So check that out. 
Now, there's a real political broadcast speech that's picking up on and using, in a you know, sort of popularist form, many of the ideas that we've talked about. There's a creeping authoritarianism to these socialist schemes, right? This is just going to end in Stalin and the Gulag. And also the idea that this, this centralised planning necessitates political repression. And this is going to be an idea that's going to stay in the critiques of the nation-state ever since. You can hear echoes of the modern American Republican Party here, obviously in very different language and style, but the underlying sort of arguments and values that are being appealed to um, are, are very, very similar. Now, Hayek is going to play a little bit coy with this because everyone's going to ask him, oh, is Churchill referencing your stuff here? Do you support this? And he'll sort of say, no, that's not exactly what I meant, but I don't disavow it either. Um, so quoting again from Hoover's Economics as Ideology, quote, in the 1940, in a 1945 radio broadcast, he, he meaning Hayek, did not disavow the line of argument Churchill had taken with the Gestapo comment. Asked directly by one panelist whether it was possible that democratic process could control planning, he replied, this is now quoting Hayek, if you see central planning in the same sense which I use it, government direction of production, I am quite convinced that it cannot be effectively controlled by the democratic process. It requires a degree of agreement among the people, which we can never expect in a free society. It requires methods by which people are able to disagree. Otherwise, you will never get democratic checks. End quote. So, in other words, that's a more wonkier academic way of saying what Churchill was saying, right? That this is necessarily going to be a threat to freedom. It's also, a contrast to different forms of freedom. If you believe in um, government freedom as democracy, then this necessarily imposes a contradiction on that because people can't vote for quote-unquote collective planning um, if that's what they really want. There's no possibility, according to this ideology, of expressing um, a democratic worldview. What about if you care about liberals, like liberals do, about limited and accountable power? Um, there's nothing you can do, according to this worldview, to check the power of wealthy monopolies. Again, that would be central planning by the government. Now, the power those monopolies exercise over the economy, that's not considered central planning. Also, if you care about giving people the freedom from pain and suffering and poverty and ill health, that again is ruled out. So I'm obviously betraying which side I'm on here, right? But notice something about it. At its heart, this is a disagreement about what the word freedom means. And what's being fought over here, both among the, the, the academics and professional thinkers, and amongst the business and political elites, and now amongst the general population, is what does this what does this word mean? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be fair? What does it mean to be just? And all of these values are, are the societal expression of what does it mean to be a person? It, it seems a, a bit obtuse sometimes to say these are competitions over the control of language. What does it mean to be a person in our individuality and also in our collectivity? 
Is it this vision of homo economic, this, or is it this vision of, of soft objective sympathy? You know, where are we going? That's what's being fought over across all of these domains. That That is what the political struggle is. So, to sum up, the conservative response to this has been quite ferocious. You have, and let's consider it on all three fronts, you've got the professional thinkers front. They've weighed in with the heavy weight of Hayek, who has all of these theories about spontaneous order and why the socialist vision is impossible. Elites, politicians, this obviously has the support of um, the wealthy, the landowners, the monopolists. They're all attracted to this vision. Um, Churchill as well, the great political leader of the age, has lent his moral authority to it. The man who, maybe more than any other, is responsible for beating fascism is telling you, this will take us back there. And what about the man on the street? Well, you know, if you fought fascism and the guy who led you is telling you this is taking you back, that would give you pause for thought, wouldn't it? So a ferocious counter-attack from conservatives against this progressive, liberal to socialist vision that's being offered in the 45 general election, this vision of healthcare and uh, national minimums and universal education. Ferocious conservative counter-attack. And in counter-attacking, conservatives are drawing on libertarian theories and ideals that had been somewhat out of fashion. And it's in that drawing on them that the modern ideological constructs that we live with today, we can begin to see their genesis. But that's getting way ahead of the story. For now, how are the progressives, the socialists, those who want people to have healthcare and education, you know, how how are they going to respond? So in their closing pitches, Churchill invoked the Gestapo. Let's have a listen to the short TV and radio broadcast that Clement Attlee gave in response. Now, I think Attlee is a very underrated politician as a politician, as a strategist, um, who's, I think, unfairly in history become stigmatised by a few of Churchill's quips about him, which, to be fair, were quite funny. Uh, Churchill called Attlee a sheep in sheep's clothing, um, which is cute. Churchill, no one can deny, has a good turn of phrase to him. He really does. Um, one of my old tutors called him a one-stop shop for quotations. Um, but I think this, the the speech Attlee's going to give, which, like short Churchill's, is quite short. It's just intended as a snippet that anyone can hear is massively underrated as a piece of political communication. So let's take a listen to him, in his own words, responding. There has seldom been a more impudent claim than that put forward by the present government to call itself national. It is reminiscent of the late Ramsay MacDonald, of Lord Baldwin and Mr Neville Chamberlain. But the circumstances of the time make the claim still more outrageous. After five years in which the Labour Party has borne its full share in the burden of government during the five most momentous years of our history, the Conservative Party, with a few functionaries and a fringe of sycophantic liberals, arrogates to itself the title of national, to which it has no right. You have only to run through the list 
of Conservative members in the House of Commons and of their candidates standing for the safer seats to see if they belong to two classes only, those who are born rich and those who have achieved riches. You would look in vain for anyone from the wage-earning classes. The nearest approach to it will be someone who in his remote youth worked for a weekly wage. In the Labour Party, on the contrary, you will find a remarkable range of experience. There are plenty of men and women educated in the school of life, but there are plenty who have studied at the universities, many of them with high distinction. All the professions are well represented, doctors, clergy, and lawyers. There are employers as well as workers, farmers, practical working farmers, as well as farm workers. There are writers and printers, working engineers and managing directors of engineering works, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and men from the merchant navy, scientists and artists, teachers and professors, and women of varied experience. The Labour Party is, in fact, a good cross-section of the nation. There are foreigners who do not appreciate this fact, and there are people at home who cannot understand it. They say, I cannot understand why well-to-do people should support socialism. I can understand, of course, a working man doing so. The answer is that the socialist appeal is essentially a moral one. The economic principles for which labor stands are not put forward as aims in themselves, but as necessary of application. In order that Britain, in its economic and social organization, may satisfy the deep desire of men and women of goodwill in all classes for social justice and economic democracy. It is the glory of our movement that men and women in every rank of society place human rights and social justice before their individual interests. A labor's appeal is not to the lower, but to the highest instincts of the human race. So, what are we to make of that as students of ideology? What I've been trying to do in this this series is not necessarily convince you of my political views, but to get you used to a way of thinking about political communication. What stands out to you there? What would you pick up on according to the sort of um, view of ideology that I've been constructing throughout this series? Well, the first thing, did you catch that um, fringe of sycophantic liberals? Did you catch that little slam at Hayek in the middle? But what's he doing generally? I would say he starts by surveying the terrain, right? He starts by saying, you know, this is not the poor versus the rich or anything like that. He goes over the terrain that I've set up, right? Academic, you know, professional political thinkers, the elites, and mass populations. And he creates an argument for we are winning in all three of these theatres. The only ground in any of these 
that they have to stand on is, as what did he say? Those who were born with money and those who acquired it. But he's very keen to stress that this is a vision of the world that's backed by many serious, uh, you know, economic thinkers. He's appealing to that sort of veneer of objectivity that ideologies so often do. He's also stressing that this is something that has support within the elites. They have been the party of government. He's also stressing that this is, you know, has the support of non-governmental elites, employers, people like that, people who were sort of traditionally upper middle class or even upper class. And he's stressing that, as he says, this has a broad cross-section of support from across society. And that's the, this is, this is the element of um, what it is to win a political argument that I think gets lost by the, the, the modern left. That, that winning, a winning political argument isn't something you create. You don't sit down at a desk and say, well, I know I want to get to X policy. How do I persuade people? It's something you find yourself have. If you're winning the ideological battle across all those different domains, then the simple statement of, of the ground that you occupy is the winning political argument. And there's a final feature that I want to call attention to. You remember earlier I said ideologies in competing over the control of language aren't just competing for what is fair and just on a global societal level. All of that is necessarily in a reciprocal relationship with what it is to be a human being, right? What it is to have a fair and just society will ultimately depend on what are humans, what are their needs, what is a good life, right? And he ends by saying... Our appeal is not to the lower, but to the higher elements, right? So what does he mean by that? Well, I can't be sure, but I hear Keynes in that. I hear um, the un th this feeling amongst progressive liberals at the time of the unsatisfactoriness of Homo economicus. He steps outside. He intentionally sidesteps that framing. He doesn't respond to the conservatives saying, well, this isn't in people's individual interest by saying, actually, you know, let me, as a modern Democrat might, let me explain to you why it is in your individual interest and let me explain to you how you'll save money this way. He's not, he, he says, I'm not playing that game. I'm going to address a different set of concerns. I'm not talking about um, what Keynes called one of the most distasteful human attributes, i.e. who's getting ahead economically. I'm talking to the moral within people, the desire for justice, for social democracy, as he said it. And again, notice that differing, that return shot on, no, this is what we mean by freedom, right? So to summarise, I think um, Attlee's done a number of things here that are quite clever. Firstly, little slap fringe of sycophantic liberals that's lovely he's surveyed the terrain and he's let people know this is a winning side people need to know that he's queried and contested i think credibly a number of the value terms to which churchill is appealing national 
justice. But foundationally, he's not accepting the debate within the opponent's framing. He's not saying, we agree that, you know, people are rational self-interest maximizers, and, you know, I'm going to respond to you saying that my plan doesn't maximize that and it doesn't. He's saying, no, I'm not talking about those lower human needs. I'm talking about the higher human needs. I think it's a really interesting piece of political communication. And the final thing I want to leave you with here is really internalizing this method of analysis allows you to start picking up on those ideological themes in so many different places of political communication and thinking, is this effective? Is this an effective piece of political communication? And is this an, an effect? Is this an ideology that's succeeding? If you take my metaphor of an army fighting in the air, the sea, and on land, if you're looking at an ideology, where does it stand amongst, you know, is it successfully utilizing political thinkers to create new ideas for it, to give authenticity to its and objectivity or the veneer of objectivity? to its core concepts? Is it drawing on elite support? Is it building institutional power? Is it getting its key figures into positions of government? Is it operating within institutions? Is it drawing on the patronage of the rich? Is it successfully finding advocates among the famous? And finally, is it intuitive? Is it something that a broad cross-section of society from all walks of life will find obvious? Those are the sorts of questions you want to ask of political movements and of political ideologies as they advance these core central contestations over language. So how does the story end? I've been tracing this story of progressive liberals versus libertarians, and this seems like a pretty climactic showdown, right? On the one hand, you have a very optimistic, some would say naive view of human nature as perfectible, improvable, you have a vision of society as fundamentally democratic, where people can vote for the vision of the world that they want, where they can stand tall, where they can have freedom, real freedom, not just freedom as able to participate in economic institutions, but freedom to get their diseases cured without fear of knowing if they can pay for it, to have their children have an education. The soft objective sympathy, right? On the other side, you have a reinvigorated conservatism weaponizing this libertarian ideology that we've been studied, first in the days of Herbert Spencer, as a backlash against a liberalism that increasingly is branching out into new areas, a, a, a denial of what is possible. This is not what liberalism is, it's argued. Liberalism is, is just about the protection of individualism and individual rights. We've seen as that ideology generated a new idea of what it is to be a person, this new human being that entered the world through the ages of political economy, homo economicus, reduced to want fulfillment and egotistical desires. And we've seen 
how that was vociferously argued for, and how that contested itself in the ideological realm through Hayek, and to be picked up by Churchill and told, this vision of economic democracy, and the ennobled man, or woman, sorry, you cannot have that. There are constraints on human action that this is violating. It will necessarily lead to ruin. It will lead to the Gestapo coming from the person who led you in the fight against the real Gestapo. It's a hard position to turn down. And it's also a decision not only about what it is to be a person and what it is to have a good society. It's a battle over what progress is. Is progress possible? Can we, as the liberal progressives would have it, chart new ground? Or, as the conservatives would have it, are there fundamental rules constraining society that we cannot change? And the British people are going to be asked to decide between those two views of the world with their votes, but also their future lives. They're going to have to live in the society created by this. Are they going to get a society of economic democracy or are they going to cast themselves into a Stalin-esque nightmare? They have to make that choice and faithfully and to their eternal historical credit, they vote to chart new ground. Churchill, weeks after winning the Second World War, is decisively rejected in the biggest landslide victory in modern British political history. This vision of the world is swept into office and is enacted. Within a few short years, the NHS is created. Entirely new systems of social support are set up. Many of these things are with us today. You know, I could talk personally about my experiences with the NHS and with the American healthcare system, having lived here. Um, and I won't go into detail because this is already overrun. But suffice to say that people are alive today because of the NHS. People are alive today because they were able to get operations that would have been denied to them under a different system. And that matters. And if you look at the US, where life expectancy among some groups is actually declining. I mean, look, that can seem so abstract, right? Life expectancy, this line on a graph is going down and down and down. You, you need to... These are years being stolen. These are years people will have with their parents that they don't anymore. These are parents who will grieve their children. And I, I, I don't think, it, you know, it's adequate to just think about it as a line on the graph going down. I mean, in a sense, you know, people, the, the people who die for lack of health insurance in America, these people are being murdered. Parents are being stolen from their children and children from their parents. They are being murdered by the economic system that we allow to continue. And I think it's about time we put a stop to it, frankly.
That is a collective decision that we can all make. And that that's the final point. And that's why people get so frustrated with the nuances of ideological history. And when I'm talking about different conceptions of language and about competing for control of a timeline and competing across all these different fronts and theatres, there's a frustration of get to the point. How do we get to the point where I don't have to worry about my friends and family dying because they lose their job and they can't afford health insurance, right? So I do get it. I do get why especially leftist radicals will be frustrated with, with, with my endless nuancing and postmodernism and waffling about theories of change. But I would argue for that same reason is why you should take it seriously. Because it matters. Because this is people's lives. Both their ability to literally continue living, but their ability to live, as Keynes says, with dignity. As Beveridge says in the Beveridge Report, with freedom, the fundamental freedoms of mankind, to not be in fear, to not be in pain. This is all what is at stake in this fight. How we live, what it is to be a person. And... We owe it to ourselves to take it seriously in what is the nature of that fight, what is actually being contested, and how is it actually won. So I'll answer the question I posed at the outset of this. If it's always going to be contested, if people are always going to disagree over the meaning of words, is change ever really going to be possible? Well, change is never going to be final and comprehensive. And what was achieved by this ideological alignment will partially be preserved, but partially be retracted and destroyed. But I want you to note how fast it came about. And again, by analogy to an army, you know, a small change in the balance of forces could lead from essentially a gridlock to a sudden decisive victory. Ideological change is non-linear. You can have long periods where basically nothing at all changes, followed by sudden, swift movement. We've seen long periods of gridlock suddenly broken by the working class entering the political system in the late 1800s, suddenly broken by the radical changes that happened to the world in the First World War and the Depression, and then again at the end with the sudden, triumphal victory of progressive welfare state liberalism finally entering the form that we know it. This is the genesis of how the world that we live in came to be. It's so cool. But what I want you to notice is it's not a slow hacking away. It's ebbs and flows and then sudden rushes. By analogy, if you watch like MMA or fighting or boxing or something like that, you can have long stretches where the two guys are just, or, you know, girls for that matter, are just circling each other or grappling on the ground. And then suddenly there's a decisive knockout. It's gone before you even know it. And that's what ideological change is like. But those changes aren't random. They happen for specific reasons. And if you want to look at it, think about what are the words we are competing over? How are we utilising those different domains? Are we winning the fight within public intellectuals and professional thinkers? Are we winning the fight to have institutional power to use it, to be influential amongst the elites? Are we winning the power to have our ideas, our conceptions 
accepted by a broad cross-section of society. Because when those three line up, you don't need universal support, but if you can get strong plurality, plurality support amongst all three, that's suddenly when decisive change can happen. And you know, in the future, it's going to happen the other way. There is going to be, I ended this story on a high note, there is going to be a sort of empire strikes back moment where it lines up the other way and many of the groups that Hayek has been a part of, you know, they're going to really become brought into the conservative orbit and a new revitalized conservatism in the 70s and 80s is going to get that lock it's going to be able to communicate and win within professional thinkers within elites and within mass populations and it's going to decisively roll back many of the advances that were made in this period although it is to this period's credit and the progressive liberals credit how much of it still remains now, that's a story for another day, and that's a whole other series of podcasts, um, which I might do one day, certainly no time, soon. Um, but that's what I'm going to leave you with. Not a conclusion, though I've certainly obviously had a side in this story, but a way of seeing the world. A way of seeing politics as about what it is to be a person. Using language to describe our personhood and our needs, and from that, to create these collective visions. And I think if there's one thing I'd like to leave you with, it's the idea that that conflict is both something necessary and desirable. We will never be outside of it. But nor should we want to be. That competition over what it is to be a person I would argue, is constituent of what it is to be a person. Okay, if you made it through to the end of that series, thank you. Um, having just got done recording it, um, I feel um, an immense amount of uh, relief to have finally hopefully brought it all together and brought it to the conclusion that I wanted it to. So one structural change, by the way, I'm going to do to the podcast is I generally get on bookkeeping, which can sometimes turn into rambling. I'm going to put that more towards the end of the show, I'm thinking, than the beginning. In the beginning, I'll just quickly introduce the episode and the guest as necessary. And then I'll do longer editorial comments, bookkeeping, whatever, at the end of the show. And I think that'll make the presentation a little bit cleaner. So, we finally got done with that series. This was um, a longer and a bigger project than I thought, because I just... I just massively underestimated the, the scope of what I was trying to do here. I might as well have written a short book or something. Um, and don't get me wrong, I've loved doing it. 
And I've loved hearing from some of you um, that people have found this to be really different and valuable. I'm not just blowing my own trumpet there, really. Um, but people who've said that they've learned stuff from this and that they're seeing things differently, I really, really value. I'll also own completely some of the failings of this project. Like I say, I definitely didn't go into it with a clear conception of what I was setting out to do. And I always knew how it was going to end, but getting it there was was a longer road than I, I thought it was going to be. And I've spent the last couple of months, um, you know, just knee deep in second and first hand sources um, at some point, not right now, but at some point I'm going to put a bibliography up of um all the sources I've used and what I recommend people read because a lot of this stuff is just up on the internet like anyone can look at it and then th there are some particular um, works um, that, that if you're interested by what I've been saying you might want to tackle um, that some of them are quite challenging works like Frieden is quite challenging but if you followed me through all of that then um, I think you're ready for Frieden um, so yeah Going forward on the podcast, I am feeling more confident to take on talking in my own voice. I've done almost, I've done more than actually a year of this podcast, and I've done almost all of it in interviewer role, which is great and I love, and I'm still going to have as the primary thing that I do. So I'm setting up more interviews now. Oh, and by the way, if you want to to um, suggest people. Uh, hit me up on Twitter or email me or whatever. My email is just, by the way, toby at politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Toby is T-O-B-Y. Politicalphilosophypodcast.com is all one word apart from the .com, spelt exactly how you'd think it would be spelt. So feel free to suggest guests or give feedback with anything else. Although... I will intersperse them with series like this. I loved doing this series. It's been really, really great. And if it was even of value to, like, two people, that would be amazing. But I've heard positive comments from, like, a few dozen from my stats. I know it's been listened to by thousands. So that's just incredible. Actually, probably tens of thousands. Which I know isn't big compared to the big podcasts, but still. Um, I think what I've learned is... Before I even put the first episode up of a series, I need to have the whole thing complete. So I know what it is, what it looks like, um, I know what all my sources are and everything, and then I can just release it back to back to back to back. I can make room in the schedule for it, um, and I think that'll make them much stronger going forward. So this thing where I dispersed it out, I'm not going to do that again, and that'll also just mean that... If I'm taking on a too ambitious project, I'll know. I have a few more in my head that I think I could talk about. Um, I have one following on from this that would do the conservative revolution in the 70s and 80s. But that's just a, such a huge project. I feel I'd never get... It would turn into like one of these Dan Carlin audiobooks or something. Um, I, I also have a shorter series on Machiavelli. Um, a short series, maybe even just an episode on the Frankfurt School. And then um, maybe I can always do stuff on John Stuart Mill. But, you know, 
Let me know if any of those sound interesting or appealing, and I think what I'll do is I'll throw up some Twitter polls. And for people who are thinking, you know, I liked the interviews, but Christ, this guy has been going on for a long time. Don't worry, it'll still be primarily interview-based, although I can't help noticing, and again, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm just saying it, um, that this libertarianism series has got significantly higher numbers or ratings than the interviews. So let me know what balance you'd like to see. I'm thinking like 70-30 in favour of interviews. Um, but, you know, let me know what you'd think um, going forward. Okay, this has been a project. I feel a, rele- a, a real weight off my chest now that it's been wrapped up. I really hope you enjoyed it um, and you took something from it. And if you've got feedback, if there's stuff you liked, or if you think I'm dangerously wrong, let me know on Twitter or Facebook or send me an email. Um, I love all you guys. I really appreciate having an audience like this. And yeah. And I think what I'll do is I might do next episode as an audience questions. So if I do get feedback, then I'll address it then, and I'll also put out a request on Facebook and Twitter for, like, Ask Me Anything. All right, y'all. I'm recording at 10pm on a Monday night after having worked a long day at work and then come home and done this after having done it through most of the weekend. I'm done. I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for making it to the end with me.